My name is Scott Chaloner and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of our programme will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership and current affairs and to this end we're joined on today's programme by Chris Burt. Chris, welcome to the show, it's a real pleasure having you with us. Thank you, I'm looking forward to it. Likewise, Chris. And for those individuals tuning into this that may not be familiar with Chris, he's an experienced strategy advisor, digital and cyber consultant and risk thought leader. Um, he's the principal at City of London-based boutique governance consultancy, Halex Consulting, and co-founder of the Risk Coalition, a not-for-profit risk management think tank that aims to improve the effectiveness of risk management practice within UK public limited companies. Um, so, Chris, um, thanks again for taking the time to, uh, to join us on the show. And risk is largely what we're going to be sort of talking about today. Day. But before we get into that, um, I'd just like to get a little bit more sort of uh, context as to sort of your background, really, and uh, sort of how you ended up in the uh, the position that you're in and sort of involved in sort of managing risk uh, the way that you do, just for those listeners that may not be familiar with you. Oh, it's a long and torrid story, but um, I started out a long, long time ago as a chartered accountant, um, decided that wasn't the most exciting career, so I ended up moving into technology risk with the big four. I spent many years in technology risk with the big four. And then that broadened out into um, all flavors of risk, enterprise risk, operational risk, all these different types of things. Um, uh, left the big four, became an independent consultant, and I've been doing that for many years now. Um, and um, the, the, the idea of the risk coalition and the guidance that we produce raising the bar came from working with a client. Mm. So I was working with a client, helping them go through a major risk transformation project. And they kept asking me questions about, should we do this or should we do that? And I was a consultant and that's fine. I can answer those questions, but I couldn't point to any guidance that they should be using or referring to. So uh, I had the bright idea of starting a project. And <laughs> several years later, um, we produced Raising the Bar, December 2019, um, published at the Financial Reporting Council in London. Um, it's got explicit support from the FCA. Um, implicitly, the PRA are supported, but they won't say anything publicly. And it's been hugely helpful. We keep bumping into um, board chairs and uh, risk committee chairs and uh, other uh, NEDs who, who give us hugely complimentary feedback on the guidance that's been uh, massively helpful for them. Um, and we are now looking at going into um, a mild refresh of it in 2023. So um, it's been uh, hugely successful. So that's, that's uh, the Risk Coalition and, and raising the bar and, and really how I got into all of this stuff. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, you talk about, obviously, uh, the Risk Coalition being um, a major success um, since sort of raising the bar was published. So um, what sort of impact has it, has it had from your perspective? Well, I think when you meet someone for the first time and you're talking about risk and they say, have you have you seen this guidance? And they show you your own guidance. You kind of go, well, that's clearly had an impact. <laughs> they haven't realized that I was the person that wrote it. And also... Um, when you hear that when uh, organizations are having conversations with the regulators, financial sector organizations having conversations with the regulators around risk governance, and the organization is referring to raising the bar and the regulator is nodding saying, yes, that's good quality. You know you had an impact. Mm -hmm. Can we measure that impact? Probably not, but just uh, anecdotal feedback has been hugely positive. So a number of 
um, I mentioned before, uh, Borders Committee chairs uh, who have been in post for a long, long time have said something along the lines of, I wish this was around when I took my role because, quite frankly, I was flying blind. I had nothing to go uh, to, to lean on. But now this is hugely helpful. It confirms that we were doing broadly the right kind of things, but also has made us think about what we do and how we do it. Yeah, certainly. And uh, you mentioned as well the upcoming refresher program uh, next year that I suppose is going to reflect some of the uh, the key developments in risk management uh, that have come about mm-hmm. recently. Um, what are mm-hmm. some of those? Could you could you tell us about those? Yeah, so I think um, there's always this question as to what is the purpose of risk management. And for years when I've met a client and uh, I was open with, you know, what's the purpose of risk management? And they look at me like I'm stupid because it's to manage risks, obviously. Well, no, actually, the, the answer is it is not to manage risks per se. It's actually to help the organization deliver on its purpose, to achieve its objectives, to meet its strategy. Um, and that's what we use risk management for, is to, to stop bad things from happening, but also to enable good things to happen so that you can meet your purpose and deliver on your strategy. And when you put it into that context, suddenly risk management stops being this box-ticking exercise and actually becomes intrinsic to the way the organization manages itself, how it works, who does what. Um, and it becomes central to the, the management approach to the business as well and engages the board in risk. And and you then look at the role of the board risk committee. And now some organizations won't have one. They'll have an audit committee or an audit and risk committee, but basically the committee that looks after that stuff. Um, and you then start exploring, well, actually, well, what is their role? And you start to see that board risk committees actually are likely to develop into strategy and risk committees or something along those lines, where the audit committee, um, I'm going to be slightly rude here, looking at the scores on the door, the historical data. So you'll have these kind of two committees, one forward-looking, one backward-looking. And I know that's a simplification, but that's broadly where we're seeing things, the direction of travel going. And I think that's a good thing because it's going to put more focus on where does this organization need to go? Well, firstly, what is our purpose? Do we have a clarity of purpose? Mm. And sadly, I see so many organizations with with a purpose statement, which is basically a marketing tagline, um, because they, they really haven't understood what the idea behind purpose is. But if you have a clarity of purpose, um, then all of those risk management efforts are there to deliver on that. And that then takes you into a longer term thinking about, you know, where this organization needs to be and moves you away from the short ter- short termism that we've suffered for, for many, many years in the UK. Um, so I'd worked with an organization last year. It was a not-for-profit professional membership organization, 170-odd years old. And I asked them, you know, what is the organization's purpose? And all the board members literally <laughs> just recited the organization's purpose, which hasn't changed in 170 years. So you know that they got their purpose right when they wrote it. They didn't call it their purpose, but you know they got it right because it's still valid and relevant to them today, and they're still working towards it. And of course, you mentioned the uh, the short termism that we have here in the uh, the UK, and I think that can kind of be linked into the risk thought leadership that we have. And um, do you think the sort of in this country we are a little bit guilty sometimes of being risk averse in the long term sense? So when it comes to sort of supporting business per se, when we look at fantastic programs out there like Innovate UK, for instance, we see a lot of very intensive short term support, but less of the long-term legacy programs to sort of help the scale-up process once the innovations have taken off? I think you're absolutely right. I think 
Uh, and it, it's all down to human um, human behavior. If you look at an executive team, you know, an executive is likely to be in a top role for five, maybe 10 years. And so their focus needs to be on delivering something within five, 10 years is a long time as an executive. So more likely to be five years. And so, you know, you need to deliver something in that fairly short time frame. Um, and when you say to them, well, this is actually a 20 year program that you're putting in place, the, you know, the, the eyes glaze over and there's no interest to them. Um, but we also have the same problem with, with government. Um, <laughs> at the time of recording, you know, we've just been through a torrid time with the government. Um, they completely changed their mini budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's within two weeks for whatever it was. So how can businesses plan when you have things like that happening? Now, I know that's kind of a, hopefully a one-off, um, but even, um, you know, governments work on a five, four, five-year time horizon, election to election. Now, I'm not suggesting we change that, by the way, but we do need to think about how we put in place longer-term incentives and um, uh, facilities to support organizations to think longer-term um, because that's the most effective way of, creating value and developing um, uh, industry and uh, commercial sector that is competitive globally because the Chinese think in decades, the Germans with their very, very strong uh, kind of middle sector, which is primarily um, owner-managed or family-owned, they think in decades and in generations Um, and that's why those those countries are strong in 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 those areas. And it's difficult for us to compete. We can compete through technology and and innovation, but it still tends to be short-termism. It does. There seems to be sort of a real get-rich-quick and sort of flipping business mentality, doesn't there, where, you know, we get the innovations off the ground and then we sell the technology to um, the Chinese market or the American market, for instance. We don't keep the innovations in the UK in the longer run, build up businesses and enable them to, you know, generate that employment and generate that economic growth that um, obviously this government is trying to target. completely agree with you. So if you speak to... um <laughs> we have this conversation with the risk coalition sometimes. You know, people ask us, "What's what's the plan for the risk coalition? You, you know, are you going to try and sell this, or what are you trying to?" It's no. What are you talking about? It's it's a not-for-profit organisation, uh, public interest. Um, we'll keep it going for as long as we can afford to keep it going. But if you talk to uh, typically a German family business owner and you talk to them about, you know, when do you plan to retire? When do you sell? When are you planning to sell the business? And they look like, they look at you like you're insane. The thought never crosses their minds because they intend to hand the business down to the family. Um, And traditionally going back in the UK, we did the same thing, but we seem to have moved away from that because I think it's probably driven through the stock market and the fact that the UK has a very dominant stock market, which encourages short-termism and and focus on um, profitability, uh, immediate profitability. Um, but longer term, probably not as great as uh, as it should be. Yeah, certainly. I suppose what you can sort of use for investment is an analogy of somebody, for instance, walking up a flight of stairs with a yo-yo, and the yo-yo is almost the value of your investment, isn't it? It is likely to go up and down, but as long as you sort of remain active in the marketplace, you know your capital eventually is going to is going to go up, and the short termism sees people sort of moving their assets away um, and cashing out at times where, you know, it may not necessarily be the best strategy in the long run. 
Completely right. I mean, that's a really good analogy. Um, and how do you address that? Well, I, again, I come back to some of the things that we talk to organizations about. So, you know, do you have a clarity of purpose? Why does this business exist? Is it just so that you can make some money when you sell out? I mean, really? Is that why it's here? Some people that would be against that would be yes. I would hope, actually, for organizations, particularly when you start to bring in uh, the topic of ESG and sustainability, um, you start to think, well, actually, organizations should probably have a broader purpose than just to make money. We've moved away from the concept that businesses are here to profit maximize. We understand that actually that's probably, you know, a 1920s, 1930s economic model. Um, so what else should an organization be here for? And that's, again, coming back to purpose, that's why a, you know, a four or five word purpose doesn't, doesn't pass muster because you need to touch on relationships with stakeholders and broadly speaking, your stakeholders are more than your shareholders. Um, and it's the environment that you work in. So, you know, if you're a, a UK business, it's not just your employees and your shareholders that are important. It's also the environment that supports you. So that's the whole economic, political, legal structure that enables you to be successful and to, to work in the way you want. And so all of that comes into purpose and why you exist. Um, I know it becomes quite philosophical, but actually um, – one of the things we found through the Risk Coalition is that a lot of these questions are quite philosophical. So, for example, Risk Coalition, we have this forum called the Risk Committee Chairs Forum. Um, we bring together 12, 15, sometimes more um, senior Risk Committee Chairs from UK PLC. We put them in a room and we have a roundtable discussion, Chatham House. Um, and it's really, really good because nothing quite like that forum exists elsewhere. Um, back in March, we ran an emergency or last minute forum because of the whole Ukraine crisis and what happened. Mm. Um, and we were fortunate enough to, to have a, a, a newly retired uh, British Army general join us. Um, and some of the questions around it at the time, people were, were withdrawing from from Russia, uh, withdrawing business operations from Russia. Um, some businesses were out the door as soon as things happened. Mm. Some of them were being dragged, kicking and screaming, um, and only because of uh, public pressure and political pressure. Mm. Um, and it comes back to what's your moral guiding light? You know, um, should you have withdrawn immediately? Was it right to have tried to stick it out to see whether things were calmed down? Um, and effectively, it does come back to a moral decision by the board. And if the board needs to make a moral decision, they need some kind of consensus amongst them as to what is right and what is wrong. And that comes back to purpose. And that means that purpose has an ethical dimension, a moral dimension, all of those things that a lot of organizations do not give sufficient time to. And if you start thinking about morals and ethics, then that feeds into ESG and how you treat your staff and mm. uh, who you prioritize over you know, profitability and all those kinds of questions. That's exactly right, because if you're not considering ESG and you're not considering staff well-being, for instance, at a time where we are more acutely aware of those things, certainly since the uh, the pandemic and consumers and um, workers alike are far more conscious of purpose, 
you're going to ultimately lose out, aren't you? You're going to fall victim to the uh, the adverse effects of the great resignation, but also consumers are potentially going to be turning away towards more you know sustainable businesses that align with their viewpoints. You are absolutely right. So um, I speak to organisations right now, um, and they really struggle with Generation Z, which mm. is the, the 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 new cohort coming through. Generation Z isn't really motivated by money. Of course, everyone needs money to live, but it's not the great motivator for them. They'd much rather work for an organization that is morally and ethically aligned with their values, particularly around climate and environment. Um, and they'll work for less if the organization aligns with their values. Um, now, maybe... You know, maybe their views will change over time. Typically, people do change their views and the values over time, but that's what we're finding. So, the higher, the brightest, the best, you now need to be, you know, um, a really well-rounded, if that's the right description, employer. Um, and if you're not, if, you're, if your focus is on producing high profits and and um, you know being quite, I guess, a US type of, of model. Um, then you're going to struggle. Um, but, but it's interesting to see how that plays out over time. But that's what I'm hearing, that you need to, you know, hiring Gen Z is really challenging right now for traditional organizations. People don't aren't prepared to work crazy hours for, you know, poor pay. They're not prepared to work evenings and weekends. Um, they want work-life balance. And I did speak to a partner at a big four firm um, who described them as lifestylers. These are lifestylers and that's, you know, that's fair enough, but he couldn't get his head around it because his motivation had always been money. Yes, exactly right. I mean, it is difficult, isn't it, to sort of adapt the uh, the traditional way when, you know, the uh, the priorities and um, the desires of this this generation have changed sort of so drastically. And uh, you're absolutely right in the sense that work-life balance, certainly since the pandemic, has become much more important. Call them lifestyle, call them uh, what you will. I mean, business leaders are under pressure now to, to, to move with the times or they are fundamentally going to lose out. So, um, obviously, thinking about sort of purpose, as we've talked about, is going to be really, really significant when it comes to mitigating risk. But um, if even if purpose essentially is something that is is well covered, um, it is important to still contingency plan for market shocks as well, isn't it? As we've seen, certainly with the impact of the mini budget that we've already touched on and indeed the other sort of after effects uh, that, that we've seen from the uh, from the conflict in Ukraine as well. Yeah, so this is another interesting area. This is resilience. Um, now, this has really become something of a hot topic. Um, and when I mentioned we were refreshing um, raising the bar earlier, resilience is something that we do touch on in raising the bar, but it's probably not sufficiently in depth. Um, so the Bank of England, um, a couple of years back, issued some guidance on operational resilience, which is now in force um, for UK financial sector organisations. Um, and it takes the concept of risk management, operational risk management, and kind of uses a different perspective and says, okay, so you've got operational risk management, that's that's okay, but you know you need to make that really work. But rather than throwing capital at a risk problem, which has been the traditional approach, mm. we have this operational risk, we'll throw capital at it and we're, we're good, we can move on. Uh, what the regulators are now saying is, no, that's not good enough. You need to keep the lights on. We don't care about, well, no, we do care about capital, but we we expect you to do something practical to address this risk so that the lights are kept on, so the cash points 
do work, that systems don't fall over when you upgrade and all those kinds of things, uh, more operational resilience. Um, and that's a real challenge. And we did see this with the pandemic in that mm. um, certainly in the early days of the pandemic, I was doing a lot of roundtables and workshops with people. And they were saying, we didn't see this coming. We didn't see this this global pandemic coming. Why did we not see it coming? Um, fortunately, most organizations had business continuity plans in place so they could move to kind of um, people working from home relatively quickly and easily. Um, so a couple of things to, to mention there. Diversity is the first one. So a lot of U.S. and European boards didn't see pandemic coming. However, if they'd had a couple of board members from Asia, they would have seen pandemic coming because Asia had been through a number of epidemics um, in the 10s and 20s, 2010s to 2020s, uh, sorry, 2000 to the noughties and the 10s. Um, and so pandemic was on their list of things to worry about. But because UK boards weren't sufficiently diverse and a uh, range of business backgrounds wasn't on the radar. Um, the second was traditional approaches to identifying risks are a bit hit and miss. You know, locking everyone in a room and saying what keeps you awake at night is a useful thing to do. But sometimes you need to kind of not take it that way. You need to say, well, what's what's a disastrous outcome and how well can we adapt to that disastrous outcome? And then you kind of work back to say, well, what could cause that? So there's this kind of traditional front to back, identify the risk and then end up with an impact and then how you're going to mitigate that. And then there's the other way around, which is to come up with an impact and then think about how you can cope with that, but also then what might drive that. Um, so the, that's something that's coming through is kind of changing the way we think about identifying risks and focusing on getting the right kind of outcomes irrelevant to the in, to what causes it. Um, so again, that resilience, that ability to um, to deal with challenges quickly and efficiently is one of the um, benefits of a really robust, I would call it risk and resilience framework. So I kind of start using the word resilience a lot more than I did previously, but effectively it is very effective risk management, but thinking in a slightly different way. And that's what business leaders need to think of, isn't it? It's, it's for instance, you can never um, predict when, say, a burst pipe might occur in your house, for instance, but knowing where to turn the water off and where the mops are, where the paper towels are, that well, is obviously exactly going to help it. You. Yeah. That's exactly, exactly it. Um, so, for example, there was a big four, um, I won't give their name, um, they had plans um, through their business continuity planning, they had put in place um, widespread working from home capability. Mm. So when the pandemic hit and everyone had to work from home, within 24 hours, they were able to put several thousand people at home working efficiently, no problem at all. Now, they never, they hadn't planned on pandemic. They had assumed that one of their offices would not be usable and therefore all those people in that office would need to work from home. They simply extended the model to cover all offices. And fortunately, they had the bandwidth in their technology to pretty much cope with that. Um, so that was a happy kind of <laughs> happy coincidence that they managed to have. Well, it wasn't coincidence. They had thought through and they had planned it, but they hadn't thought about what might cause this. Mm. So um, that was you know, the benefit of, of this stuff, of thinking outside of the box a little bit 
um, trying to challenge yourself. You know, we're not talking about alien invasion from Mars. We don't need a plan for that one. But um, certainly thinking about, you know, war in Europe, who thought that would happen again, really? I mean, you, so you do need to start looking at scenarios. And you also need to challenge yourself on, on probability and likelihood of these scenarios because there is, a, intrinsically within, within humans, there's a positivity bias and we tend to downplay the likelihood of things bad things are happening. Mm. Uh, as part of our survival instinct, I think. But um, what the pandemic and other things have shown over the recent past is that the likelihood of these bad things happening is probably higher than we had thought. Therefore, when you start to look at severe but plausible scenario analysis or extreme but plausible scenario analysis, you know, what is plausible is probably things that are more uncomfortable than you had anticipated. And so we do need to push our boundaries in terms of what is extreme um, or what is severe but plausible. And it's probably, you know, worse than we thought, which is fine because then we need to think through and decide how we can cope with them. Exactly right. And a pandemic might, a future pandemic may well be on the agenda again now, having not been for, for so many people. And um, also you mentioned, of course, war in Europe, who would have foreseen that coming, of course. But I suppose history sort of shows, doesn't it, in certain times, um, armed conflict is, is certainly likely and it is something that you do have to uh, have to plan for. I mean, if you look back to sort of the onset of the uh, the Second World War, for instance, it was a challenging economic climate, wasn't it, that also uh, sort of drove the uh, the development of that? Yeah, you just got to look at European history. So, uh, you know, history does tend to repeat itself, unfortunately. And Europe has never been war-free for a significant period of time. Um, we have been war-free for a probably longest period of in history since the Second World War. But you know, what's happening? What happened in the Balkans in the nineties? What's happening now in Ukraine? Uh, you know, just demonstrates that. Civilized societies do tip back into war on a frighteningly regular basis. What is unbelievable or incomprehensible can happen. Now, should ordinary businesses be planning for war? Probably not, because you know an, an individual business gets subsumed by what happens across you know something like that. But certainly, we as a country should be definitely, and we do think about that kind of stuff. Um, which is one of the benefits of of this or this, this country is that we do think about those kinds of things reasonably well and plan for them. But um, yeah, challenging times, I think. Certainly so, and I suppose another issue that we that we do have to be really aware of as well is the challenges around sort of recruitment as well and the risk around that because it's not just, of course, the advent of, of Brexit and the inability of some businesses to look at the European pool as easily as before, but it's also the uh, the long-standing sort of skill shortage in so many key industries in this country. So it's um it's it's a lack of sort of bringing in new talent and sort of contingency planning to you know retain what you've got as well. That's also really important there too. Um, that's that's a whole can of worms. So um, yeah, so if you look at UK productivity, it is significantly below France, significantly below Germany. Now, question mark, why is that? And that, if you ask me, it's because for far far too long, uh, UK PLC has reached for the tin marked uh, migration to fulfil um, labour requirements. Mm. And has typically brought cheaper labor in rather than investing in plant equipment, technology, innovation, all those types of things, because those things are hard. And I'm probably going to be quite down on, you know, UK senior executive management. You know, they always take the easy option. 
Um, now, taking that easy immigration option off the table forces people to think about, well, how else can I do this? And already we hear stories about, you know, I'm, I wasn't able to bring in my soft fruit pickers this year, so I've invested in some technology and, oh my gosh, voila, my productivity's gone through the roof. But yes, I've had to invest in plant and equipment, um, which we should have done years ago. Um, and that then brings us back to training, education and investing in your workforce. We've been really bad at that, really bad at that. Um, and we need to get better. So I've had a number of organizations mention that, you know, we spend a lot of time and effort training these people up and then they leave. Well, of course they do because you're not paying them. You've got to, it's not just investing in their training education. You've got to, to pay them um, a market rate. What you don't, so that's a big painful expense, but it's worthwhile because you then get someone who's completely invested in your business and they're willing to make your business as a success as, as a result. So, um, and, and a, a final point, I would also challenge that, you know, there's been a big drop off in migration. There really hasn't been a big drop off in migration. What there has been a drop off in is in European migration of low and low skilled people. Um, we are getting significant numbers of people coming in from the rest of the world, um, with higher qualifications and experience which means that some of those low and no skilled jobs are going unfilled. So, you know, you can't, you know, your, your bar or your restaurant is going to struggle because the people that are coming here aren't coming in to do those jobs. So time to now start paying them proper wages and then you'll fill those roles. Exactly right. And um, just thinking about the uh, the future now, uh, Chris, just before we wrap up on the show, just because I'm conscious we are starting to uh, to run short of time and a very enlightening show that it has been. Um, we've talked a little bit about the upcoming uh, refresher programme uh, for the uh, the Risk Coalition. Um, so in light of that, I was just uh, wondering um, maybe by this time next year uh, where you sort of see yourselves and uh, what sort of risks you feel um, business leaders need to be aware of on the uh, the horizon as we sort of try to navigate this period of time. That's the million dollar question. I would be retired on <laughs> an island in the tropic of the Caribbean if I knew exactly what was going to come down the line at us. Um, so uh, there is real value, real value to be had in horizon scanning and thinking about emerging risks and keeping the organization on its toes in terms of what might impact inevitably the risk that cause most damage are the ones we don't see coming um, so at least having your eyes open can be helpful um, and I was talking to the chief executive of an organization called ORIC O-R-I-C which is um, an operational risk uh, benchmarking organization uh, they work with the insurance sector a lot and they've just launched um, uh, a service where they take in um, client information on emerging risks and horizon risks and then they bent, then they consolidate that and they play that back as a, as a benchmark and what they found is that actually the quality of the emerging and horizon scanning processes within organizations is pretty poor it's at least it's at best it's a once-year process and most of the risks that are being identified are obvious ones in other words they're not even trying to identify the left field ones they're struggling to identify the ones straight in front of them so I think what that tells us is that risk management in UK and globally, quite frankly, is um, developing. It is not mature. Um, there's a long way to go. 
And that's great because that's where the risk coalition comes in. We can help lead that development, that thought leadership, and uh, and hopefully, you know, uh, everyone will will develop with us. And it'd be great to see the risk coalition really at the forefront of those developments. And as we start to see those really take form, I would relish the opportunity, uh, Chris, to welcome you back onto the show just to see the uh, the latest things that business leaders really need to be thinking about. Because it's certainly been incredibly enlightening for myself to welcome you onto the uh, the program today to talk all things risk. And I'm sure that the listeners um, will also share that sentiment as well, and it will leave them with plenty to think about. We'd l- we'd love to come back in a year's time and see how we've done. Yeah, and hopefully there'll be some positive news to share for sure. And, yeah, uh, yeah, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? It'd be nice. <laughs> not all doom and gloom. Yeah, not all doom and gloom. A little bit of positivity can be infectious in times like this for certain. And um, just, of course, for anybody listening into the programme, um, if you do resonate with any of the uh, the issues that uh, we have discussed on the uh, the programme today, uh, you can leave a comment with us via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash contact hyphen us. Or you can even apply to be on the programme and bring your perspective on this matter or any issue to, to the discussion table. Um, via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply as well. Um, for now, it's been my immense pleasure to welcome Chris Burt from the Risk Coalition and um, Helix, Halex Consulting onto uh, today's programme. And uh, Chris, uh, do by all means take care and uh, uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll catch up on the programme soon. Thank you. And to all listening into the programme, I've too been your host, Scott Challoner, on today's programme, as always, and we'll be back with a whole new edition of the Leaders Council podcast next time. And until then, take care all and goodbye.